we're going to play a game. I'm going to give you the name, the alias of a superhero, and you have to tell me who the superhero is. Okay, everybody understand? All right, so you're going to, everybody understand? Okay, because it's participatory, and so if you don't participate, this won't work. All right, so here's the first one. Bruce Wayne. Very good. Okay, very good. Um, Tony Stark. Very nice. All right. Bruce Banner. All right. Pretty good. There was, it was not nearly as many people on that one. Uh, Peter Parker. Very good. Can tell where the students are sitting over here. Okay. This one's going to be a little harder. Alan Scott. Green Lantern. Who said that? Very good. Very good, Matt. Also, also more recently, in the more recent edition, uh, Hal Jordan is Green Lantern. So that might have thrown you off. That's the old name. Now, now here is the one nearest and dearest to my heart, Clark Kent. Superman, who, of course, we all know is the first and greatest superhero of all comics. Now, all of these, all of these superheroes had an alias. And, of course, there, yeah, there we go. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. That's, and that's the right actor, too, by the way. All you young guys, take a look. That's the right one. All right, so all, all of us understand that a superhero has an alias. It was a name they, they went by and they were known by. But, but really, they were this superhero who did these fantastic, marvelous things. Now, superheroes and, and the interest in superheroes is really rooted in something I think that God hardwired into every human heart, and that is the desire and need for a savior, a rescuer. The Bible talks about this rescuer and calls this title, gives the title of this rescuer of the Messiah as one who would come to rescue and redeem God's people. And in the Bible, this Messiah goes by over 250 names, 250 aliases that all give us insight or an idea who this Messiah will be, what this Messiah will do, and sort of the nature, the character of this Messiah who would come. Of course, we celebrate the birth of this Messiah, and we know that his name is what? Jesus. Now, come on, you said Batman with more energy than you said that. We know that his name is what? Very good, very good. That's right. We understand that his name is Jesus. Now, clues about who Jesus is and what he is, what he came to do, are throughout the entire Bible. But there is one particular passage that we are looking at this Advent series from Isaiah chapter 9 that uses four aliases in succession. It's the only place in the Bible it does it. And each one of these names tell us something really important for us to understand about Jesus. And so I want us to read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 together. We'll put it on the screens. And so let's read these verses together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we are going to take each of these names apart each Sunday of Advent. Last week, we looked at the name Wonderful Counselor. And what we discovered is that what this name tells us, who he is based on this name, is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. 
that Jesus is not just half grace and half truth, but he is fully grace and truth, which qualifies him to be our wonderful counselor. We also knew something about his nature from the name. Wonderful in the Bible is only used to refer to activity of God. And so we recognize that this Messiah who's come was both fully God and then the word counselor refers to his humanity. And so he was fully God and fully man, his nature, wonderful counselor. But it also tells us the gift that Jesus came to give us, that Jesus came to show us God's love. He came full of grace and truth, and he came to point us to God, to God our Savior. The truth of that and all that means for our condition and how we've been separated from God, but also the grace, that it was through the grace of God that he made a way for us to be reunited with him through Jesus. So that was last week with Wonderful Counselor. If you missed it, you can check it out on our digital campus and download it, uh, or you can watch the, uh, the live stream version that's there and catch up. But this week, I want us to look at the second name Isaiah gives us, and that is Mighty God. Now, this name may be the most controversial of all four of the names in the Jewish scholastic circles. Uh, The Jewish scholars understand that Isaiah is talking about the coming of the Messiah, the Savior who is to come. The Jews today, Orthodox Jews today, recognize that throughout the prophets, they talk about this this Messiah, this this, uh, Redeemer who would come in the name of God to rescue his people, but they don't believe that this Messiah who is to come will be himself God. And yet, what Isaiah said in these four names, all four names tell us that the nature of this Messiah wouldn't just be that he would be human, but that he would also be divine. But this name in particular gives them trouble because the name of the Messiah will be Mighty God. And so we learn right away who he is based on this name, that Jesus is God with us. Jesus isn't just a God. He isn't just God's representative, but he is in fact God in flesh. The Hebrew phrase for this name literally means that he is our hero God, that he's our hero God. John gave us a clue about this in John chapter 1. We looked at it in depth last week, but John said in John chapter 1 verse 1 that the word became flesh And that the word was God and the word was with God. And that the word became flesh and came to dwell among us. John was giving us clues from the beginning that this was no ordinary savior. This was no ordinary king or prophet or priest. This was God himself in flesh. Paul talked about this in Colossians chapter 1 where he said that this Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, God who we can't see We can see in Jesus Christ that he is the God who has literally taken on flesh and come to be among us, to be with us. And what this tells us is that Jesus is the ultimate hero God. He is the ultimate hero in disguise. That he took on flesh, was born in a barn, lived a humble life of a servant and a teacher. He washed his disciples' feet. And none of that lined up with what people expected for a king, for a redeemer, for a messiah to be. But it certainly didn't line up with who they expected God to be. And yet here he was in the flesh, the, the image of the invisible God. Jesus, the ultimate hero God. It tells us about his nature too. That he is mighty. That he's a mighty God. Mighty is a word that's often used 
to refer to humans. It's a, it's a word that talks about his humanity. You, you can know mighty men and women today, people that you would say they're strong, they're powerful in, in body, in mind, in spirit. They're mighty. But he wasn't just human. He was also divine, that he is God. This is a clear affirmation. Isaiah is telling us, he's giving us clues that this is a clear affirmation that the Messiah would be God, that this was a deity coming in flesh to rescue his people. This name carries images of a warrior God, one who comes to fight, one who comes to rescue, one who comes to redeem. And honestly, this has given Christian scholars some hard times because we look at Jesus and we say, well, he doesn't look much like a warrior God. In fact, at the time where he was under attack and assault, at the time he was being arrested, he told his disciples to put the swords away. And he went away, Isaiah tells us, as one, as a lamb who was led away to slaughter. In fact, he willingly died. He allowed himself to be crucified. So he doesn't look like a very strong, mighty warrior. And yet we realize and understand that Jesus waged a war, not against flesh and blood, but a war against the spiritual dark forces of the world. That Jesus didn't come to fight us, who are sinful and separated from God, he came to fight on our behalf. That Jesus is God for us, who came to rescue us and save us. And this tells us the gift that Jesus came to give. That he came to save us from our sin. The mighty warrior God who would come to rescue his people, to redeem us, to save us from sin. And so I've been thinking a lot over the last few weeks about where could I find one story in the New Testament that really exemplified this characteristic of Jesus, Messiah, the mighty God. And the problem was that they all do. (laughs) Every story in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, point to this idea that Jesus is God with us, that he's fully human, fully divine, and that he came to rescue us from sin. But there's one chapter in particular that I kept coming back to, because this particular chapter in your Bible, Luke chapter 8, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 8. But this particular chapter of the Bible, I think, shows us his human nature and his divine nature, and it shows us the activities of a hero God who came to rescue us. So if you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 8. We'll begin down in verse 40, but before we get there, I want to take a look at the first part of the chapter and kind of walk you through what's going on. It's almost like Luke is just recording for us the activities of Jesus, trying to point out to us both his divinity and his humanity, and how in his divinity and humanity, he is coming to rescue people from their sins. The, the, the chapter opens up with Jesus teaching the crowds. And, and he was a wonderful teacher. And he drew huge crowds. And his words were not like anything the rabbis or the priests or the prophets before him had said. Everybody understood that, that they were hearing something that was anointed and that was divine. And they recognized this. And just as soon as he finishes teaching, uh, Luke reminds us that not only was he divine, but he he was also human. He has this encounter with his mother and his brothers as soon as he's done preaching. And I can tell you from personal experience, there's nothing better to bring you back down to earth after preaching than going and sitting with your family. Dad, do you realize how many times you say this word? (laughs) Dad, don't say that anymore. People don't say that. (laughs) So, so here Jesus is, he's teaching, and then he goes and he has this encounter with his mother and with his brothers, and his mother and his brothers don't believe 
that he's the Messiah. They don't believe that he's the one. They're beginning to doubt. They're they're worried about his reputation in the crowd. They're worried about what people are going to think about him and by reflection what they're going to think about him and uh, them. And so he has this encounter with his family. And then from there he gets with his disciples and he sails across the lake. And he's exhausted. He's tired. That shows us his humanity. And so he takes a nap in the boat. And while he's sleeping, a storm comes up on the lake. And and the disciples are, are terrified. They don't know what to do. And Jesus is sleeping. And so finally... Finally, they wake Jesus up and Jesus says, peace be still and calms the storms. And suddenly we see that this, this very, very much human Savior is also very much fully divine. As he was resting and then wakes up and calms the storm. And then he arrives on the other side where he encounters a man who's possessed by many demons. And he drives the demons out of this man who's been possessed for for many, many years. And no sooner does he drive the demons out than the people of the village come and kick him out of town. So we see his divinity and we see his humanity. And then we come to verse 40 and following, and this is what we read about. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a disorder, a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, and she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you are all pressing in on you. In other words, Peter's saying, everybody's touching you. How are we supposed to know who touched you? But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declaring in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I love this story. I'm sure many of you have heard this story before. If you've been in church much or you've been in church maybe earlier in your life in Sunday school and children's Sunday school, maybe you've heard this story. But I love this story. It shows us the divine power of Jesus that, that even touching the hem of his garment brought about some sort of healing. But it also shows us his incredible humanity that he would recognize even in a crowd somebody who was so desperate and he would respond to that woman's need and speak to her. Speak lovingly and kindly to her. And so we see this picture of the hero God, the one who came to rescue us from our sin. And you know, heroes uh, have a particular wardrobe they wear. Now there's some debate among modern heroes as to whether or not they should wear capes. But all the greatest heroes, in my opinion, i.e. Superman, always wear capes. 
And rabbis in Jesus' day were no difference in terms of what they wore. They had a traditional garment that they would wear, and it set them apart from the rest of the crowd so people could recognize here is a rabbi, and they could approach the rabbi with their questions, or they could, uh, they could approach the rabbi for his wise counsel. And Jesus was a rabbi. And so Jesus, like all the other rabbis, would have worn a particular garment that is known as a talus or a prayer shawl. Um, This is sort of a a modern version of one. We don't know for certain that it's exactly uh, like the one Jesus would have worn, but it would have been similar. And so Jesus would have worn it over his shoulders, and when he was praying, he would have put it over his head, and this would have been his garment. This would have what he would have worn as he walked around uh, the crowd. Uh, th- this, this garment, a talus or a prayer shawl, uh, the, 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 the corners here are, are called a kanaf. Everybody say kanaf. Now, kanaf in Hebrew literally means corner, but it also means wing. And you can see why they would call it a wing, because when the rabbi would raise Uh, his arms to pray a blessing over the crowd, it would look as if he had wings. And so that was the wings of the prayer shawl, the wings of the garment. But the prayer shawl itself, the talus or the prayer shawl, the kanaf itself, really wasn't what was most important about the prayer shawl. It it would sort of be like a letter jacket. The, the, The letter jacket itself isn't really what's important, but the name of your school on it is what's important, or the sweatshirt of your favorite college football team. It's not the sweatshirt itself, but it, it's, the, it's the logo, it's the, it's the name of the school that's the most important. And the, the talus was the same way. It wasn't the talus or the kanaf that was important. It was this part. It, it was the tassel. We would call it a, a tassel that was the most important because this is what the religious leaders in Jesus' day were commanded to wear. And it, it, the commandment goes all the way back to Moses when God was giving Moses the commands for how they were to live and lead uh, among the Israeli people. It says this in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38 through 40. Throughout the generations to come, you are to make talus, tassels on the corners of your garments. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by going after the lusts of your own heart and and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. And so these tassels, the Hebrew name for tassel is tzitzit. Everybody say tzitzit. It's kind of fun to say, isn't it? It's spelled with a T and a Z in succession. Tzitzit, that's what this means. This is a a tassel. Now, this tassel carries a significant meaning. The word tzitzit itself, actually, um, it can be represented by the number 600. In Hebrew, there are no digits or numbers as we have them. Uh, They use their same alphabet to represent numbers. And if you add up the numbers in the Hebrew word tzitzit, it adds up to the number 600. And then this, this tassel itself contains eight strings. And then it is tied in five knots. Now, eight plus five is what? 13, very good. And then 13 plus 600 is what? 613, very good. 613 is the exact number of laws that are recorded in the Torah. And so this represented for them, when when Moses said, hey, you are to be reminded of the law, this was the reminder. 
613 laws that they were to obey. It was a burden that nobody could actually achieve. It was, it, nobody could actually carry that burden. It, it was too much. And yet they were hopeful that God, through his grace, through his mercy, somehow through this Messiah who would come, would rescue them and save them from their own sin and deliver them from the bondage of sin. But in the meantime, they held on to this hope and to this law that was to govern and, and to guide them. But, but not only does it represent 613 laws, but it also shows us because there are five knots, it reminds them that there are five books in the Torah. The first five books of our Bible were the, the law, the word that Moses had been given by God and shared with the people. And, and the space between the knots each represented a letter in the holy name, the sacred name, the unspeakable name of Yahweh, the four letters. And so this was an important part of what God was doing through his people. This was an important part of what God was reminding them of what he had come to do. And so this is, Jesus is wearing this as any rabbi would have worn, is walking through the crowd and the crowd is pressing against him. There is a woman who is incredibly desperate. She's been in pain and suffering for 12 years. Doctors have taken all her money. She's got nothing left. She's got no hope. And and she wasn't allowed to touch anyone for 12 years. The law of Moses, one of those 613 laws that were such a burden that nobody could bear, one of those 613 laws was that if a woman was bleeding, she was to to be called unclean. And when you were unclean, you were not allowed to touch anybody or you would make them ceremonially unclean. And so for 12 years, this woman had been untouchable. She would stay away from crowds. She stayed away from her family, from the people she loved the most because she was unclean. But that wasn't her only problem. You see, the law also said that if, uh, if a person intentionally made others unclean, they could be stoned to death. So she was in a desperate situation because not only could she not be in the crowd If she was found in the crowd, she was putting her very life at jeopardy. And then, as if this wasn't complicated enough, you had this rabbi, this hero God who had been walking around. And people in the crowd had come to recognize and know the power of Jesus. And so the crowds were always around him. He was so famous and so popular and so sought after. There was no way she could get to him to have him heal her without somehow fighting her way through this crowd. And so we read in Luke 8, 44, that she came up behind him and she touched, read these words with me, she touched what? The fringe of his garment. This part. She touched the tzitzit. She touched the hem of his garment and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. Now interestingly enough, This is not the only time in the Gospels where it's recorded that people sought out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 14, verse 36, that people begged Jesus that they might only, say it with me, touch the hem of his garment as and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. The Gospel writer Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 56, wherever he entered, into a village, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplace and begged him that they might just, say it with me, touch the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. 
So why? Why would this desperate woman, why would the crowds, why would so many people seek to just touch the hem of the garment, the tassels, the tzitzit of Jesus' prayer shawl? Why would they do it? There was, there was nothing that would have indicated that any normal rabbi would have been able to heal them through the prayer shawl. It was just a prayer shawl. It was common. It was ordinary. Every rabbi had one. What was so different about Jesus? Well, all these people who sought to touch Jesus' Jesus' garment, every, every, every one of them who tried to touch the hem of his garment understood what Isaiah had said years before. That this was no ordinary rabbi. This was no ordinary man. This was the mighty God who had come to rescue and to save. And there was a prophecy that told about this in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. The son of righteousness had come. He had come to be among his people. And they understood that this was no ordinary rabbi. And this was no ordinary prayer shawl. This was the son of righteousness who had come with healing in his wings. And she thought to herself, if I could just get close enough, if I could just touch the corner of his garment, I will be healed because he is the mighty God, the hero who came to rescue and save his people from sin and death and the grave. And so in faith, this woman pressed her way through the crowd. At great risk to herself, at shame and peril, she could have been ridiculed, she could have been stoned, and yet she pressed through the crowd and she reached out and she touched the hem of his garment and immediately she was healed. I wonder this morning, if this Christmas season... You need to reach out and touch the hem of the hero God's garment to find healing. Maybe for you, it's from sin and shame that you've been trying to carry for so long. A burden that no one was ever meant to bear on their own. And maybe, maybe today for the first time you would reach out and touch the hem of Jesus' garment and be rescued be saved by the hero god jesus but for others maybe maybe you have been following jesus and with the faith of this woman you would just say i need to be healed i need to be healed of an addiction i need to be healed of pain i need to be healed of a sickness i need to be healed of a broken relationship i need to be healed of flawed thinking i need to be healed i need to touch the hem of jesus garment I'm going to invite the band to come up and to lead us in another song. And as they do, um, I've got some prayer shawls that I'm going to uh, lay out here on the steps. And the, the tzitzit of these prayer shawls will be, will be available for anyone who this morning wants to come.
And just in an act of worship, in a symbolic act of your own faith in the hero God, Jesus, maybe you would come down and you would just grab the corner of one of these prayer shawls and just acknowledge your faith and your hope in the mighty God who has come to save you from your sin. Father, today we come and we recognize, Lord, that the burden of the law is too great. We can't bear up under it. No one ever could. And so we fall short in so many ways. And yet you recognize in your grace and in your mercy our need for a savior, for a hero. There was no human hero available who could do what needed to be done. And so you took on flesh and you came to dwell among us, our hero, God, our rescuer, our redeemer, Jesus Christ, Messiah, name above all names. And Lord, today at this time, 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, we still desperately need our hero God to save us from our sin, to rescue us, to heal us. And so, Lord, in faith we come. We come proclaiming the name that is above every name, bowing our knee in worship and reverence in awe of you, calling out to you, heal us, save us, rescue us, redeem us. Lord, today there is somebody here, today there is somebody here who finally knows that they cannot bear the weight of the law themselves, that their sin is too much on their own. And today would be the day of salvation as they come and just receive the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, today I believe there are people here who have followed you and in faith, Lord, in faith, they would come and just pray to receive healing from you for everything from physical ailments to addictions to broken relationships. Lord, today, we don't just want to learn about the mighty God. Lord, we want to touch you. We want to experience you. We want to feel your strength and your might lift us up out of our brokenness and our sin that you might prove yourself the redeemer, the healer, the mighty God. Lord, we invite you in this time to work as only you can. And in the strong, mighty, powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.